Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today. I know that many are discouraged about numerous situations that are going on in our culture currently. You can go to many places for negative news, but today I want to bring encouragement that God is indeed raising up a generation who is not content with sitting idly by and assuming others will take the lead. My guest today is Sam Martin. Sam is the creative director at Free the People, an organization that finds and tells stories of people affecting positive change in their community through entrepreneurship and innovation. Sam has over a decade of experience in cinematic storytelling, acting, and production. He has produced everything from full-length and mini-documentaries to presidential campaign ads, short films, commercials, scripted web series, music videos, and online promotional content. I might also add that I have known Sam since he was a little boy, as his parents and I are personal friends, meeting through the Chalcedon Foundation and being fans of R.J. Rushduni's writing. Sam was homeschooled for most of his education. He completed the Stella Adler Art of Acting Studios two-year professional conservatory program, studied at the Los Angeles Film Study Center, and received his B.A. in theater arts from Westmont College. Sam is an enterprising problem solver, dynamic, creative, and principled communicator, passionate about spreading the ideas of liberty in fresh and innovative ways. Sam directed Free the People's How to Love Your Enemy, a full-length documentary about restorative justice, which has garnered numerous awards at film festivals across the country. So Sam, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And it's a special treat for me because uh, I knew you when you could hardly put sentences together. So <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you have this impressive resume is uh, a testimony to your many accomplishments. Hopefully I'm a little bit better at putting a sentence together now. No, we'll, no, we'll see. I, you already <laughs> are. I've watched your video, so I know you are. Yes. All right. So let's talk about this documentary how to love your enemy. I've watched it and it sounded very biblical to me, even though I don't know that the word Bible showed up in it, all about instead of incarcerating people, allowing people the opportunity to make restitution for offenses they've created. So talk a little bit about the topic and how you got involved with doing the documentary. I'm so glad that your takeaway was was that you 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 heard and you saw these principles, but it, it was never explicitly said because that's always been precisely my goal with everything that I do and what we do at Free the People. We're, we're really just trying to tell stories. We're trying to find really good stories that, that, like you say, show how people can make a difference in their in their communities. We love the themes of these kind of libertarian liberty themes. And of course, me being Christian, I love to find the kind of the, the crossover topics. So that's where restorative justice came in. 
it both works for the organization because it's it's community based. So it's a direct alternative to our retributive justice system, which is basically our the conventional system that we have now, which is largely state based. It's essentially the the state is in is in control of of this system, and there really isn't any. There's no wholeness that's found. There's no there's no restoration. Restorative justice is an alternative to that. And we, we just kind of stumbled upon this topic. Essentially, we had a, a donor who was really interested in this topic. And he thought that libertarians had something to say about this because it's, it's essentially been something that I would say the left or the progressives have, I don't want to say dominated, but they've, they, they've spoken about it the most. So essentially, we, we wanted to say something about this. So he got us in touch with the director of one of the largest restorative justice organizations in the country, who then got us in touch with this small community in Colorado called Longmont. And they have a particularly interesting and I think unique restorative justice model there, where it's a collaboration between the, the police department and these smaller community-based organizations. So let me stop you for a second and just kind sure. of give an overview here. So a lot of people would probably be surprised to find out that the Bible does not establish a prison system, that there are certain offenses in scripture that would be considered capital offenses, and then there are the property-type offenses, and the Bible says there needs to be restitution. If I bang your car, not only do I have to restore your car, but I also would have to make up for whatever you lost in wages or time because you had to get it fixed. And one of the things that restitution allows for is forgiveness, whereas our current system, somebody has a problem, the offender goes to jail, the victim feels like, well, I don't get anything out of this and there's not an opportunity for restoration. So I wanted to give that as a backdrop because I was really impressed with how the stories unfolded and the positive effect it had on both offended and offender. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I believe it gets its roots from a old Testament biblical level. I don't know if a lot of people Actually, Howard Zinn, who's really known as the the godfather of restorative justice, he talks about it quite a bit in his book. And there's also some, you know, Native American origins to it and the Maori in New Zealand. But yeah, for, from a biblical standpoint, I love the themes because you it just first of all, it just feels intuitively like it's a, um, it's 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 Christian. Like you said, the, the element of forgiveness, the the victim centeredness is what got me because in, in our typical justice system, the victim has no doesn't have a seat at the table. And that's what makes restorative justice so unique. The victim is a part of each stage of the process. Just to clarify again, Mm -hmm. an offense happens, it's the state of California or the county of such and such. So the state makes itself the offended party. And as you said, the victim, whatever. And so there's never this complete circle that says we're done with this now. Exactly. Yeah. In our conventional system, the, the three questions that are asked are what law has been broken, who's responsible for that, and how are they going to be punished? And restorative justice asks, who is the victim? What needs to be done to make things right for them? And who should take responsibility? So it's a profoundly different approach to justice. 
it really, it really, like I said, it really gives the, the victim a seat at the table. It allows them to, to face their offender and to ask questions that never in a courtroom would never be asked. Like, why did you do this? Why did you choose me? You know, if it was a burglary or something, why did you choose my house? And then, you know, I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit, but there's essentially these, these circles that are these victim offender mediation circles. And there are members of the community that are involved. There's the offender, there's the victim, there's usually some sort of facilitators. And the entire idea behind it is that when you create a crime in a community, it doesn't just affect the victim, it, it affects everybody else in the community. So it has kind of this reverberation effect. And in order to make it right, in order for the perpetrator to take responsibility for it, they have to make it right with the victim, they have to make it right with the community, and they have to make it right with themselves. So it's an incredibly, you know, a lot of people talk about it like it's this, you know, soft on crime thing. It's not at all. I mean, we, we sat through some different sessions. It is an incredibly difficult process. The offender or responsible person They have to go through several of these really emotionally intense circles where they take responsibility. They actually have to take responsibility for what they've done. And in our typical system, that's the other differentiation. The the offender is incentivized to not take responsibility. And that's the entire idea of the the Miranda warnings, right? It's like anything you say can can and will be used against you. Well, with restorative justice, it's exactly the opposite. In fact, these different organizations will get it in writing from the district attorneys that they can't use anything that the offenders say against them. So the incentive with restorative justice is truth. It's actually speaking the truth. It's taking responsibility. And then once you take responsibility and once you go through these circles and then you come up with essentially a, a, a list that everybody in the community and the victim comes up with. Uh, lists of ways to make it right. And that can be if there's some sort of monetary harm that can be paying, that could be community service. You know, it, it's, it's incredibly individualized, which is why I love this system. It, it's not top down at all. It's completely decentralized. You know, the punishment, it's not even punishment, the whatever we have to do to make it right is incredibly individualized to that particular, you know, incident or that particular crime. And then once you do those things, your slate is wiped clean. And you're able to reintegrate back into society and the victim has been made whole to whatever extent that's possible. Um, All right. So you said it's truth-based. Well, first thing that came to mind is the scripture that says the truth sets you free. And Mm -hmm. so instead of farming people off to jails and then prisons where it could amount to higher education in crime, and figuring that it doesn't matter what I do, I always have this mark against me. This process allows for, as you said, a clean slate. Now, just to be clear, murderers, rapists don't end up in these programs. Is that correct? They generally don't. Um, like the, the the program that we were following in Longmont, they only take lower level crimes. There are some larger programs in the country that do take some of these higher level crimes and they generally still go to jail, but they're able to go through this restorative justice process in order to lower their sentence. There's a, there's a pretty big news story. It was a, a boyfriend that shot his, his girlfriend, I believe. And the parents actually chose 
to go through the restorative justice. And her parents actually chose to go through restorative justice with him. And they wanted, because they wanted him to have a better life. And I think they saw some sort of potential and promise in him. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to read about it because, you know, the father talks about how his, his heart ached. His, his heart was in pain when he talked about why he did what he did. And, and, but then eventually, you know, they, he, he was deeply remorseful for it. And, and the parents ended up forgiving him. And he had a life sentence that was brought down to 25 years. And so he's still, he's still paying for what he did. But the, it's really, it's really victims focused, you know, the victims who are the parents, and of course, the, the girlfriend, but the parents in this case, they wanted to go through that, because there's this kind of this false promise that in the in the conventional system, you're going to find some sort of fulfillment or wholeness or something from seeing the perpetrator behind bars. And Generally, that actually isn't the case. Um, there have been lots of studies about this, but you know, the parents found some sort of closure about it just by being able to talk with him through all of these different facilitated meetings. So, yeah, so it, it's rare, but it, it does happen, and obviously, it's it's a much trickier thing. But yeah, it's 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 generally lower level burglary, vandalism, that that kind of thing. It's interesting that you know everybody's got a story, and we like to say, well the person had no father or he was poor or whatever it is, but it doesn't erase the fact that someone was injured and someone did the injuring. Mm -hmm. So how does someone, it says that I know in the film, the police department had something to do with it. How does the process start where you have somebody who has vandalized or has burglarized? How do they get into the program and who has to say yes in order for it to happen? I think it's different for a lot of different communities. For the Longmont community, there the police officer will be the first one that refers a case over to the restorative justice nonprofit organization. So, like I said, they have a really special collaboration there, and it really is a model for the rest of the country. And that's why we wanted to make this film actually, because it's it's really how it should be done. These these should shouldn't be separate entities. They should be collaborating with each other. So, in that system the police officer will refer a case and then the nonprofit organization, the community-based organization will contact the offender. I believe it's the offender first and they will talk to them about it and they'll see if they want to do it because they don't want to promise. They don't want to talk to the victim first and then promise something that they can't actually give them. And then they talk to the victim and, and kind of get their, their buy-in too. And, and there's just this process of communicating with both of them individually. And, you know, like somebody I talked to interviewed at one point said when they when they first, you know, have the the perpetrator or the offender come in, they show them a lot of love. <laughs> and that's that's the word that she used. We want them to, to feel like they can trust us. So they basically say, we see somebody better in you. We know that this doesn't have to be your future. We know that you want to change your life. Just the fact that you came and showed up today is huge. It's, it, it means that you are, you're already taking that first step in making restitution. And yeah, and so, and, and then they kind of do the same thing with the victim where it's just like, there just needs to be full buy-in from both, which is another thing that I, I think makes restorative justice really unique is it's, um, it's all based on the individual. 
if one, if there's one person in the system that doesn't want to do it, it doesn't happen. So it's all individual responsibility. It's all, you know, the victim has to say yes. The offender has to say yes. The community has to say yes to this. And then once they all get together and they, and they talk about, you know, what's, what the offender's done and the solutions that, that, that they have to do to make it right, it's all consensus based. So if one person thinks that it's not enough or there needs to be more, then, then there's more. So it's just this, it's just a bottom up community based decentralized process that I think is really amazing that it just, it just happened, you know, it just kind of happens. Like obviously there's a lot of people involved, but it's, it's, it's this kind of spontaneous order that, that occurs at a community level. So does the district attorney's office get involved? In other words, if it was a case of burglary, if a statute has been broken, how is there a guarantee or is there a guarantee for the offender to um, say, you can go through this, but you're still going to have to face the consequences. I don't think the, the district attorney is too involved in Longmont. Uh, I know that San Francisco has a policy where essentially you're automatically referred into restorative justice if, you're, if it's a, a lower level crime. And then, the, and then the DA, well, they come up with a contract with a DA. So essentially, if the person... You know, if the offender goes through the whole restorative justice program and then they go through the whole process of making things right, which usually has five or 10 different different things that they have to do to make it right. And then the nonprofit organization signs off on that. Then the DA commutes a sentence, essentially. I see. Now, I know Longmont has been doing this for a while. Do (laughs) offender and offended actually establish a relationship that goes beyond this process? Sometimes they do. You know, a lot of times it's this checklist of things that they have to accomplish, right? Like it it can be any number of different things. And a lot of times it's, it's the victim just asking the offender to wanting, wanting to make sure the offender doesn't do it again and wanting to make sure that the offender kind of creates a better life for themselves so a lot of times this can actually turn into better relationships in the future because the victim actually wants to see the offender become a better person. I remember in the mm-hmm. film that a couple of people said nobody wants to be defined by their stupidest or baddest action. And mm-hmm. depending on the nature of it, there are certain crimes that, let's face it, have to be dealt with a particular way and they can't be overlooked. But I'm thinking, I don't know if you know the story that Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Mm. Carson, who ended up being a renowned pediatric surgeon, had quite a temper when he was younger. And the way the story goes, he got mad at somebody and pulled a knife on him. And Mm. had the knife blade not broken, his life would have been totally different. But he, it was sort of a wake-up call for him that said, God, help me get rid of my anger. And so well, he wouldn't want to, and he, he will say so, wouldn't want to be defined by that moment because God had bigger and better plans. So I think mm. the idea of helping someone not be defined by what they did and then help them see that there were people, there are people who care about them having a productive life. I, th- I think that's exactly, exactly what it is. You know, like any, any number of us could, you know, make that that horrible mistake that just leads to our life being a completely different thing, you know, like be texting and driving or, 
you know, something like that, you know, like I, I mean, I personally was brought into this whole topic because somebody in my family had, you know, I, I don't want to go into details, but it was, it was one of those mistakes that we all could have made. And now they are in prison and they're dealing with the conventional system right now, which is all about retribution. It's all about making someone pay for what they've done. And there's crimes that are committed that deserve a jail sentence. It just doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem right to me. and doesn't seem to be helping anybody. It's, it's not helping the, the victim find any sense of wholeness. It's not helping the offender actually become a, um, a, a, a productive member of society, right? Like, I mean, exactly. most people just, just go to prison for a short amount of time and, and they go back into society and they're the exact same person, except their life has been, has been ruined. Yeah, I think a key term here in restorative justice is the mm-hmm. noun justice, because mm-hmm. for justice to be realized, for justice, that means that the offense has to be acknowledged. And then with restitution, where you can make restitution, then that rest without the restitution component, there is no justice. So the we call it restorative justice. In other words, it's making sure that justice is justice. Yes. The title of the documentary is How to Love Your Enemy. Now, there aren't specific religious references in the documentary, but of course, Christianity has as its basis to love your enemies. <laughs> so how yes. did you come <laughs> up with that title? And why do you think it's applicable to what you convey in the documentary? I came up with that title at about 3 a.m. Uh, one morning because <laughs> uh, I've just been trying to think about some what what is the right what is the right thing that really gets across what we're trying, what I'm trying to get at with this film? You know, I, I, I was, it was interesting because I talking to some different people that we had interviewed that are part of the restorative justice community. And, and they did have a small issue with the title because they never wanted to, they don't want to use the word enemy. Right. But from a biblical perspective, it's, I think it's really important to use, to use that word because it shows the immense amount of the huge amount of transformation that has to happen in order to love your enemy, you know, and in order to actually get to the place where you can love them. And from what I saw and from, from interviewing these different people on Longmont, that is where they attempt to get. And if it's not love, it is seeing the humanity in the person across from them. Sam, Mm -hmm. it seems to me that you first have to identify someone as your enemy before you can love them. Yeah. If there's no such thing as an enemy, then why would Jesus have told us to love our enemies? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear that if you're mugged by somebody or somebody, you know, steals your computer or something or breaks into your house or, you know, maybe you don't want to use the word enemy, but they're not your friend. Exactly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I wanted to use that title because, like I said, it's, it's, the film is about transformation. It's about transformation for all people involved. And that was what was really interesting to see through the documentary and through talking to these people. It's not just the offender that transforms, it's a victim, it's everybody in that community where you're actually able to see how somebody can change right in front of your eyes. And I think, you know, from a biblical standpoint, that's what justice is in the Bible from my perspective. You know, a lot of people say, you know, God is 
it's all, you know, the bio, especially the Old Testament is, is retributive. But I think if you look from a right. macro level at the entire direction of the biblical story, you know, God creates this like perfect harmonious world where humans live in this right relationship with him and each other and, and just kind of this broader created order. And then humans kind of violate that relationship, which is similar to what happens in restorative justice. You kind of, you violate the relationship with the community, essentially. And so humans violate this relationship with God, with each other, with the community. And it's kind of a, a crime against God's law. And, and at first it seems kind of retributive because they're, they're, you know, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden and, and kind of more broadly us as humans were kind of separated from God. But then it sets forth this kind of long historical process of, of recovery. And where, where, where God kind of undertakes everything that's necessary to restore humanity to its rightful place through, through Noah, through Abraham, through David, through, you know, the return of Israel from exile. It's just, it's, it's all, it's God working patiently for restoration. Um, and there is retribution, but that happened at Calvary. That's where the major retribution happened. And Absolutely. justice was restored. The relationship between man and God was restored. So I, I think that the way in which people view the Old Testament is often because they've had experience with prison. They've had, ex I mean, living in a society that has it. They've watched a lot of television with bad guys and good guys. And mm -hmm. they have no concept that that's not what the Bible lays out. The Bible says, if you do something, other than a capital offense, which takes somebody's life or rape, incest, things like that, then that's one set of crime. But the rest, if the only person who would end up in the bad side of that is the person who doesn't want to make it right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was talking to someone recently and he pointed out that uh, within the band of apostles, Jesus accumulated people who would normally have disliked each other extensively from the tax collector to the zealot to the fisherman. <laughs> he made sure that they all had to travel together and learn how to recategorize someone from being an enemy mm. to being a brother. Oh yeah. That's, that's beautiful. I love yeah. that. Mm. So now let's jump from the topic to being a documentarian. So you get all this information, you think this is a great story, and then you have to tell the story. What's the process you go through to figure out how on earth am I going to tell this story? You know, with, with documentaries, it's tricky because there's obviously there's no scripted story there. So there's a lot of time spent in pre-production where you're you're doing pre-interviews with people. So we, we, we basically had interviewed everybody we we're going to talk to and, and did a lot of research on restorative justice and, and kind of put together a story, you know, like just a, a, just an outline of, of what we wanted to do. And then of course, when you actually go and film, then everything changes. <laughs> everything is, it can end up being a completely different story. Like, you know, for instance, we were really expecting to be able to get to be able to film one of these circles, right? Like that, that's where, that's kind of where the drama is. That's where the, uh, we want to see it happen in, in real time. And, and then we get there and it's, and it's like, well, we can't, we, we can't do that because there's privacy concerns and, and all these people have signed different 
different contracts and, and everybody has to agree to have you film. And so that was, that was just like a really difficult thing. But then, then we pivot and we figure out how, how we can, how else we can tell the story, which for this documentary was essentially, you know, finding some different people that wanted to be on camera and, and tell what had happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, So then we go through this story and we kind of re-dramatize certain elements of this. And then we, we pepper in different experts talking about, you know, about the process, but we really wanted to get the story. We wanted to show a victim. We wanted to show an offender go through the process, even if that's, you know, them just retelling their story after the fact. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it's, it's shooting a lot of stuff. We did a lot, you know, we, we did probably four different trips to Longmont, getting back in the editing room, coming up with a story, and then uh, all of us collaborating and, and moving things around and then scheduling reshoots because we're realizing that we're missing a whole bunch of different things. And, and then eventually coming up with something that we like. And I think, you know, one thing that I love about video editing and, and just video production in general is that there's like, it's a very individualized process. So the story that I create is going to be very different than what my coworker creates. And I think that's, that's really interesting. So that's kind of how, how it works out for, for this. And I think it's always different for, for different documentaries. Well, one thing I know that's true, and this is uniformly now, of course, I'm not a professional like you are, but you can have a great story. You can have a great moment and somebody trips on the cord and the audio goes out or the lighting isn't good. And so there are these other considerations. Is there usually someone in a documentary who's in charge of all that technical stuff? And then there's the person who's relating to the people being interviewed. Ideally. Yeah. We, we have a small tight knit group. So whenever we're on set, it's, you know, generally with different sets, you have, you have a lot of different people on set. You have, you know, one person is in charge of one thing, whether that's the, the camera or sound or lighting or, you know, grip, cinematography, whatever. But we all play multiple different roles, which is the great part about our, our team. I, I really, I think we have a, a, a small but very talented group of people. So we, we kind of seamlessly shift between roles, which is really nice. But yeah, generally there's one of us that is the director and they tend to be kind of the outward facing person who's talking to the different people, you know, interview subjects, making them feel comfortable and, and kind of getting their story and, and, and sussing out how, how much they're willing to tell ahead of time. And then we kind of go into it and yeah, like you say, things, things change. Like sometimes you get a great moment and then afterwards they say, Hey, I don't want to be in this. <laughs> um, you know, which is, that's tough too. Like some people, some people look at our website and they, and they see that we're, so, we really try not to be political at all. It's not our thing at all, but they see that it's libertarian leaning and, and they have all sorts of different assumptions about what that means. And so they say, I don't want to be a part of this. And and leave. But, you know, the, I think I would say the main thing that we did with this project was we got this community to trust us. And not that we're going in wanting them to trust us. We just created a relationship with everybody involved. And it wasn't about politics. And we made that very clear from the beginning. We just wanted to tell the story about how this works so that other communities can institute the same thing. And I would say that's that's essentially like the most important thing that we do whoever we're interviewing, we really want to create a good relationship with them. And we want them to know that we're not going to 
take their words out of context. We're not going to do anything. We're not, a, we're not a media company. You know, we're not a news company. We're not, we're not trying to twist people's words at our, uh, at all. We always, you know, we always create our story and we show it to them to make sure everybody's okay with it. And then we, and then we release it. So, so yeah, gaining trust is, is, is really important. Right. Which shows to me anyway, that you have a bigger mission than applause at the end of your documentary, that you're really trying to encourage people by finding edifying content. Let's face it. There's a lot that could bum people out today and having <laughs> good news. I, I contend that there's probably a whole lot more good news than most people realize, but that's not what our mainstream media or even some of the social media outlets, they like to talk about what's bad. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 they talk about what's bad. I think there's indoctrination. I think it's just, you know, I think it's pumping people's dopamine and getting them angry or whatever. And that's just not what we do. We just, we, we want to tell good stories that are, that are inspiring and that motivate change, some sort of change. Okay. So that's a good segue into <laughs> another aspect of what it is you do with your organization. You know, when I decided I wanted to interview you, I went and watched everything I could that you had been a part of through there. You basically have hosted three series. One was called Freedom Over Fear. Another was called mm -hmm. The Cult of Wokeness. And the third was called Liberty Beats. And these are pretty much just you being Sam, talking to whoever's listening. Discuss a little bit about these series, why you did it, and uh, the effect that they have had. Sure, yeah. Liberty Beats, uh, to start with, was my first series that I ever created. I, I, I created that probably six years ago. It was right when I was starting to get into video production, and I was finding my way in D.C. and, and got connected with kind of these liberty-oriented organizations. And, you know, there, there just was a need during that time for anyone that was more on the conservative side of things, any of these organizations, the content just wasn't good. You know, it, it, it wasn't story based. It wasn't creative. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't hopeful. It wasn't any of these things that I, that I love being an artist and creator myself. So I wanted to, I wanted to figure out some way to get these messages across the messages of liberty across in just a unique way. So I was kind of racking my, my brain. I was thinking, okay, what about like, what about slam poetry? What about, what about talking some of these about some of these issues that I care about um, in a kind of poetic way where there's, you know, quick cuts, different visuals and fast paced music. And, and so that's I kind of, I was literally in a coffee shop and came up with that idea. And that's my first series. And I go through a lot of different, a lot of different issues, but that's, that's kind of like my, I would say my upbeat, inspirational, this is what I care about. And this is how we can kind of come together um, as people and stop being political about different things. That's what Liberty Beats is. The other two were more a product of the pandemic. And they started really early on. And I could see very quickly, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and so could, you know, I'm sure plenty of other people, including different people in my organization, that this emergency was going to be used to take away our rights <laughs> um, because that's been done a lot in the past. And so I really wanted to say something about that. And I wasn't sure what that was, but I came up with this series called Freedom Over Fear, which is essentially we go through, you know, it's, it's me and, and, and my writer, Logan, we kind of 
we're kind of both both right. Um, but Logan Albright is is one of the writers at Free the People. But we go through these different issues and we look at historical examples of how you know during times of emergencies, time you know crises, our civil liberties have been taken away, or our privacy rights, or essentially different issues like that. It's I'd say it's a warning more than anything else. So it's it's not as it's not as positive or kind of maybe inspirational as, as Liberty Beats, but it's, I think, really important topics that we all need to be reminded of because I think we forget about our history. And so, you know, we talk about during 9-11, how there was this big crisis and, you know, everybody came together, but then the Patriot Act was created, right? And the NSA was created and the government was was spying on on its citizens. And it it's just kind of all these different things. So, so we talk about, you know, uh, vaccines should never be mandatory, tech censorship, how te- tech censorship hurts all of us, vaccine passports, how we lose our privacy in a crisis, lots of different issues there. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that series and uh, keep, keep creating more and more of them because there's just, our, there's just a never ending amount of different crises right now. I'm, I'm currently working on one with uh, Ukraine. So yeah, so that's that series. And then the Cult of Wokeness, was also one that started early on in the pandemic. So I wanted to dive into critical theory. And everyone's kind of, you know, heard a little bit about critical race theory, CRT. It's it's become more well-known now. But when I started the series, it really wasn't, nobody really knew what it was, including myself. And I, and I kind of kept seeing different social media posts about white fragility or these kind of these different buzzwords. And I was wondering, what, what is this? Why does it seem like everybody all of a sudden has the same script for what's going on and, and, and white people are bad and, and systemic racism? It's just kind of all these different buzzwords out there. So I really, you know, I started, I started researching it. I got into, started learning, you know, that it's all comes from critical theory, which is essentially gets its roots in, in Marxism and, and I wanted to create a series that is accessible, that people can watch and be like, oh, this is what critical race theory is. And here's why it's probably not a great idea. So I go through a, a few different ones. I also have a video on there that is the cure for critical theory, which I say is liberalism. But what I mean by that is classical liberalism. It's, it's free speech. It's, it's free communication with people. It's open communication. It's talking to each other and and allowing for disagreements. And I think we used to be for that. I'm not quite sure what's going on nowadays, especially with people more on the left side of the aisle, who I think used to be more for this kind of thing and, and aren't anymore. So, so yeah, I would say in a nutshell, those are my three series. So it's kind of my way of, you know, it's not all that I think about. It's not all that I care about, but it, it, it they are some issues that I really care about, especially since... You know, I, I think critical theory is it's it's just taking over the institutions. It's taking over schools. It's it's affecting everybody's kids. I'm going to have kids one day and I don't want them to be indoctrinated. So I really want to know and I want other people to know exactly the roots of of a lot of these these different ideas that are being taught in schools. Very good. And what I discovered is that you have hundreds of thousands of views on social media. So obviously people are interested in what you have to say. I, you know, I think so. So far it's, um, it's, it's always a little bit surprising to me, but I, I just think people, 
people care about this stuff too. And I think if the internet has taught us anything, there is just this, that what the mainstream media is telling us is, is not necessarily accurate. And there's this, a much larger majority of people that don't buy into kind of the mainstream narrative and they want to get some of these alternative viewpoints. So I'm, I'm just want to play a small part and maybe getting some of those ideas across. Well, let's go back a little bit because you didn't hatch out of an egg somewhere that somebody found. You (laughs) were raised by parents who obviously encouraged you to pursue things that have now grown into not only good products that you've been able to produce, but a way to make a living, et cetera. Um, When did you know, or how did you come to know this was the area you wanted to pursue? I think it's amazing how, how things happen. And I, I, you know, it's just a lot of it is not necessarily to do with me. It really, I've, I felt a lot of God and, and my whole journey, I, I guess, first of all, going back to my parents, my, my parents really encouraged me to do whatever I wanted. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't just whatever I wanted, but they encouraged my creativity. They, they encouraged me as an artist. I was never forced to do anything in school. Of course, my, my parents have always taught me to, to question authority, to think for myself, to think critically. You know, I've always told people my, my parents are kind of like libertarian hippies. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just this, like this weird kind of crossover thing between like conservatives, but, but basically living like hippies. So, um, I've, I've always had that in me, which I, I, I definitely give all of that to my parents because that's, that's kind of who I am. And I think that's why I've never thought of myself as conservative or liberal or really anything. I, I don't really like the dichotomy there because I think we're all everything, right? We're all a mixture of a lot of different things. So I just think, you know, a, gr- a great upbringing that I think led very, very easily into what I do, which is, you know, it's essentially I'm, I'm on camera. I'm able to express my creativity through filmmaking through editing but i'm also able to have a voice and and i th- i think make some sort of a, a difference in a world right now that's kind of terrifying in a lot of ways you know uh, just the direction that a lot of different things are going so so yeah i mean just a little bit more about my story i i was i was uh, i was acting in la i was auditioning i was working as a bartender and and a server at a hotel a couple different hotels and I just finished conservatory. And during that time, Ron Paul was running for president. Something that I've learned over the years is the thing that you kind of do in your free time is the thing that you really actually want to do, right? Like I was, I was auditioning and I was doing all this other stuff, but it's kind of a drag. And, and I really didn't like the idea of auditioning. I really didn't like the idea of, of kind of selling myself to somebody else. I really wanted to be in control of of, of my own destiny and what I did and my own projects. I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to do, I didn't, I don't want to make somebody else's project a reality. And so on the side, I was, I got really interested in libertarian politics and Ron Paul and kind of Austrian economics and, and this whole different way of looking at things. It's really, it's really kind of a more of a lifestyle than a political ideology. And I've always, you know, like I said, going back to my dad and my parents were just libertarian by nature. They, they didn't force it. You know, they didn't say anything about it necessarily. They were just, they're just kind of live and let live. So when, once I had found this, this philosophy that really seemed to work for my personality, then I really wanted to like become a part of it. So I moved to DC 
one thing after another just happened. I just, I, I found a mentor. I, I got a job. My mentor taught me everything I know about video editing and production. We started a produ- production company together. And then we kind of collaborated with the, the head of the organization that I was working for then, which was FreedomWorks, who then left FreedomWorks and started Free the People. And we essentially started Free the People with him. So I'm still working with all the same people that I was working with when I first moved to DC. And it's, I'm just, I'm amazed at how it's just blossomed into this, this career that is, that's awesome. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I have flexibility, I have freedom, I travel, I make really interesting content. I'm able to, if, you know, if I have an idea for a documentary, I basically have complete freedom to go and explore that topic pitch it to them, explore that topic and essentially go and shoot it. So I feel very blessed. I love what I do. And I'm just, I'm, I'm thankful to God that this, that it's worked out like this because it definitely wasn't a plan that I had. Well, it was, it was his plan, not your plan, but it was his plan. And I hope this encourages, because a lot of my listeners are homeschooling parents and their children also listen as well to the podcast and to not stress over what will happen, but just make sure that you're living in the present and understand. And if you have questions, you explore it and that you're free to ask the questions. You're free to disagree so long as you're not disrespectful, so long as you're not, you know, anarchistic in the process, Mm -hmm. but that all of us, even from the time I met you, you know, you were an eternal being then. you just were in a smaller body and you didn't have as many good words and sentences that you can put together now. But to recognize that we're all destined to do something and that's why God created us. And I'm just mm-hmm. encouraged when I see people like yourself going for it and not being afraid. In other words, none of what I've seen of your work, Sam, Looks Mm. like you were trying to hedge your bet. You were just being who you were and saying what you thought. And sometimes that, and I can tell you that as a writer myself, sometimes that exposes you. And now people have a target to shoot at. But if you're doing it for a greater purpose, then okay, so somebody's not going to like it. Yes, I, I think that's, I think that's so true. There may be some people that don't like it. But I think there gener- it generally seems like there are a lot more people that respond to authenticity and will want to watch your stuff. And I'm, I'm not even talking about my stuff necessarily. I just notice how I am attracted to different podcasts and, and especially podcasts in general, because podcasts have become this platform where you're just having a conversation and it's long form and there's not a lot of pretense. There's not a lot of, you know, BS and mm-hmm. you, you just, that's what people want now. And not that I'm saying that I'm doing it because it's what people want. I think people are doing it because it's just, it's just who you are. You know, you're just, you're just being yourself and, and you're speaking whatever truth you know at the time and, and trying to be as authentic about it as possible. That's what I'm trying to do at Free the People. I think that's what we're trying to do at, in, at Free the People in general. Is just get away from to get away from whatever our discourse is right now. That's not working, <laughs> right. and try to try to go into some something that feels a little bit more authentic, a little bit more real, and something that's a little bit more story based. You know, like we we all just like the whole re- restorative justice thing. You, you 
somebody becomes a real person when you hear their story. And I think that if we can tell our story and tell other people's stories, then the politics start to fade away, right? And the differences start to fade fade away because at the end of the day, we're we're kind of all just human beings. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, even the Bible from major portions of the Bible are telling us a story. And Jesus communicated very important points through stories called parables. And for a lot of people who would gravitate towards the kinds of things that you talk about, what they're missing isn't so much the desire or the agreement. They don't always know how to phrase it. And I always say that good communicators give people talking points. I was having a conversation the other day with somebody and this man said, thank you so much for what you just said. Now I have a way to communicate to my brother-in-law what I've been trying to communicate to him for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. So as we who've been given the gifts of communication, whether it's speaking or writing, that it helps people because it gives them talking points. And if you think about it, the mm -hmm. Bible gives us talking points, sort of like love your enemy. <laughs> That's a talking point. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, that's so that's so true. I've never really thought about it like that. But I, I feel the same way when I listen to somebody. It's like, oh, thank you, because you've, you've kind of given me the words that I couldn't quite come up with myself. And I think that's kind of what we're all trying to do for each other in some, in some weird way, maybe, or at least that's the effect. Well, very good. So Sam, we're getting to the end of our time. If mm -hmm. somebody wanted to find out more about your current and past projects, how would they do that? Go to youtube.com slash free the people or free the people.org. Or you can also go to my personal website, which is sammartinproductions.com. I'm also on Instagram, instagram.com slash samwyantmartin. I get a fair number of inquiries like, how do I talk to that person? Oh, that person would be really interesting to talk to. And who knows, you might even get some requests to mentor other people just like you were mentored yourself. Oh, cool. I'd love that. Very Sounds good. Great. Well, listeners, thanks for joining me. As always, if you have any comments or questions or suggestions for future interviews, you can reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.